of you would of the days when we would visit uh, Keith Morton uh, in his home towards the end of his life. For those of you who didn't know Keith, he was our first deacon. Uh, for many years, he served faithfully in the church. And he passed away in March last year at the age of 91. Uh, perhaps the most gentle man I've ever known. Very gentle-natured. And also, he had a natural skill to fix just about anything. Uh, he would give Glenn a run for his money. And, uh, <laughs> but in the last years of his uh, life, and especially uh, after his wife Faye passed away, uh, those of you who remember, in 2014, it was really a day when he didn't express his longing and desire to uh, leave this world and be with Jesus. Uh, you remember that, and whenever we chatted uh, and the conversation touched upon heaven uh, or upon the Lord's coming, his face would just light up with anticipation. And I think that we can understand that kind of a reaction when it comes to people in that kind of a circumstance, right? But it's another thing entirely when we're younger and especially when uh, we're training for a profession or maybe anticipating one of life's great blessings, uh, perhaps marriage or children. It's another thing in those circumstances, I think, uh, to really anticipate heaven. Uh, it's almost as if that is something that is reserved for older folk uh, or people who are chronically ill or perhaps those who are in their final hospital stay. I remember when my first wife, Linda, was in her last months. Uh, she was just transfixed on, on heaven and eternity because she knew that uh, it was going to be very close. It was very near for her. However, we all know that from Genesis to Revelation, all of God's people are regularly directed to lift up their eyes to look above and beyond. We are told to do that in many passages. And God has also graciously concluded our Bible with two full chapters that make us look up. So again, I want you to open up to chapter 21 in Revelation. And we're going to read together from verse 9. And as we read, just ask yourself, what is this passage about? Revelation 21, verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. First foundation was jasper, second sapphire the third Chalcedony, the fourth Emerald, the fifth Sardonyx, the sixth Sardius, 
the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. Twelve gates with twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. The street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. The glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. The nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. The kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. This shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now that whole passage, as well as the first five verses of chapter 22, are all about what? It's all about the city, right? In fact, in these two chapters, the majority of the revelation from God about the future eternal state is centered on that city. Somebody says to you, what is heaven like? The majority of what God tells you concerns this city. Now, Hebrews 11, which highlights the faith of God's people, tells us in verse 16 that God is not ashamed of those people of faith in that chapter, which is remarkable because when you read through the chapter, you see the names of people who sometimes acted very shamefully. I mean, if you had been there uh, with them at the time, you would have been embarrassed by what they did. Because they are people of genuine faith, the writer says, therefore, God is not ashamed of those people. One way you know that this is true, according to the passage, is because He has prepared a city for them. He's not embarrassed by them. In fact, He's actually prepared a city for them. Now, one of the illustrations of faith in that chapter that is so helpful Uh, for us in this regard, is when Abraham entered the promised land that God had ordained for him to possess. Scripture says that even in the promised land, this man lived like a pilgrim, like someone living for another place and another time. Well, Why did he do that? I think the logical answer in our way of thinking is because he never possessed that land in his lifetime. But that's not what the passage says. The verse actually says that Abraham lived there with the pilgrim mentality even in the land that God promised him because it says he was looking for a city with foundations. whose builder and maker is God. That's an amazing statement. This man is actually living in the inheritance that God promised to him And yet even there, he's looking up because he hasn't found what really satisfies him on earth. And he's looking for a city whose architect and whose creator is God because he didn't find it anywhere on the earth, not even in the land that God promised to him. Now, there can't be any doubt that the city Abraham was anticipating is this city in Revelation. I want to direct your attention to what we began looking at last week, which is this city prepared by God. Now, of course, for some of you, it might not be a very attractive proposition to spend eternity in a city. Uh, maybe you're kind of a country person at heart, and one day you'd like to retire to Dubbo or uh, Alice Springs or Broken Hill or something like that. Well, You know, I think that may be the case because earthly cities, uh, no matter how grand their architecture, no matter how uh, tall their skyscrapers, no matter how cultured 
and sophisticated their arts may be, as it is with all big cities, you know, uh, once you get down inside them, it's a different story on the streets. Dirty, and the alleyways are narrow and dark, and there's crime and sirens and homeless people camping out in crowded conditions and red light districts. But this city isn't going to be like that at all. I think you'll enjoy living in this city. Let's just work through what we have about this city in verses 10 to 18 this morning. And I want to take it uh, as it's revealed at face value. Uh, I mean, there's obviously a great deal that you and I might have questions about when it comes to this city, but uh, God hasn't given us all the answers, right? Uh, and you might ask the question, well, why not? Uh, and I want to give you just postulate two reasons for that. One reason, I'm pretty sure, is because of the nature of gift giving. Uh, it's a little like parents or friends, you know, when they purchase something uh, that's going to be a very special gift. And in order to build the anticipation, you just start throwing out hints. Uh, you might say, uh, you know, hey, uh, hey, honey, I got you something for Christmas. And you're going to love it. And what's the first question they ask? What is it? <laughs> and you say, well, I'm not going to tell you. He says, well, why did you mention it then? And you say, well, you know, I wanted you to know that I'm thinking about you and I got you something and honey, you're just going to really like it. And she says, uh, well, is it something to eat? And you say, maybe. She says, is it something to wear? Yeah, maybe. And what is it? Well, trust me, you know, you've wanted this for a long time. You're going to love it. And then you don't say anything else. <laughs> Maybe that's what the Lord is doing here by not answering all of our questions. He wants to see the look in our faces when we open up the gift. But in addition to that, I think it's also like trying to describe uh, a city today to somebody who's never ever seen one. Uh, you can... You know, talk about bits and pieces. You can describe certain features. You can maybe describe certain landmarks. But there's just too much to fully describe it without actually seeing it. Well, there's a multitude of features about heaven and eternity and this city, and they simply just they just don't match anything in our experience. And there's no way for God to really communicate to us what it's like without actually seeing it. There just aren't enough words to describe it. There just aren't any experiences to identify it to us. We can't make any connections. So surely I think that has to be part of the mystery as well. And what we have here is simply intended by God, I think, to just throw out a few hints as to what awaits us. So let's not make anything up this morning. But let's take it exactly as we have here. And in verse 11, God reveals to us, first of all, this city's brilliance. Look at the wording. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jewel, like, like a jasper stone. Now, uh, you can buy a piece of jasper today, and I've actually asked my family for some jasper this Christmas. All right, I might already know what it is now, but, <laughs> um, but that way I can just kind of put it on my desk and think about uh, what's coming in the future. I think that would be cool. Because this passage says that this city is like Jasper. Now, what is Jasper? Well, I want to give you a few facts about it because when God wants to communicate what it's going to be like, He does reference this stone that is quite well known, and then He says, hey, it's like that. So I think it would be helpful for us to think about Jasper for just a moment. I wish I had a piece I could show you. I will after Christmas. Jasper is a stone that is much like quartz. In fact, it's a variety of quartz. However, about 20% of it contains other minerals or organic matter. And that's what kind of gives it some color. So Jasper is predominantly reddish, not a bright red, but kind of a uh, pinkish uh, reddish uh, color, uh, mainly. So I got some pictures I've got up here you can look at. See, But in addition to the reddish color, you can see uh, that other colors might be thrown in. There might be waves, 
or there might be spots or uh, you know, blues, yellows, greens, uh, whites, and so on, but mainly this kind of reddish color. Now, you can also see that jasper is uh, what we call opaque, meaning uh, that you, you can't see through it. However, in the case of this city, the jasper is unlike anything that is here on earth. If you look at verse 11 again, uh, it says the light, the light of the city is like that of a most precious stone. Now, uh, we can identify with that because we know a lot of gemstones uh, that you can hold up to the light and see that light refracted and it be, can, can be quite brilliant. But when it comes uh, to the stones that this city is like, it's like jasper. It, God says it's really like a crystal clear jasper. It's a translucent jasper. That's the word they use. Now, what I think is so helpful for us is the fact that this is actually the first gem that is called to our attention when it comes to heaven. Uh, maybe you remember back in chapter 4 when John sees that throne scene. We are told in verse 3 that when he saw the appearance of the one on the throne, it was like a jasper stone. Now, all I can do is assume that God is trying to communicate to the readers something about the impression of this scene uh, to the human eye. And so he says to everybody, uh, you know, it's like Jasper. I mean, you know Jasper. It's, it's a little like that, except it's transparent. It's crystal clear. That's how it's going to be in that city's brightness. It's also interesting that in verse 18 of this same chapter, we are told that this is the material uh, that makes up the wall of the city as well. Uh, you look at it. It says that the material of the wall was jasper, which is also the first foundation stone in, uh, in verse 19. So really, when it comes to that city, and you're talking about the various gems that are found there, the overwhelming reference is to this reddish uh, kind of a stone. Now, let me tell you something that uh, I think is almost ironic. Uh, in researching this, I discovered that in ancient legend, uh, going all the way back to the first century, superstitious people thought that Jasper had the ability to drive away demons and to protect against serpents. You get a snake problem, you get some Jasper on you. And even today, many people are obsessed with rocks and the properties of rocks and uh, even uh, you know, the magical influence of rocks. And they say that jasper will have a calming effect on you. It will give you stability and security, probably because it keeps the snakes away. <laughs> and they say that jasper is what balances your emotional and physical and intellectual state. Now, I don't believe any of that. That's legend. Right? That's superstition for those who don't have any higher object for their faith than a bunch of rocks. But do you think it's by accident that people are looking for power against demons and serpents and the balance of their inner being in a stone called jasper? And yet God says to those ancient people in their legends and to people in our modern society that it's still filled with superstitions. God says to them in the Bible, I've built a city. And it's like Jasper. So if anyone wants to have their emotional and intellectual state balanced, if they need security and a calming effect on their spirit, hey, I got a city made of this stuff. Jasper. And uh, yeah, I thought about this. Maybe you can also use this as a witnessing tool. If you have a friend and they're into the rock thing, the mystical powers of rocks, you can turn to this chapter and say, you know what, there's going to be this place that's largely made of jasper. And it's going to be secure and safe and there won't be any demons or, or serpents and the people there, they're going to be totally balanced emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. The city made by God is your opening for the Gospel. Now, jasper does not produce light, but it can refract light. Um... Think of a chandelier, you know, all of these crystals that refract the light, that make a room look brilliant with the whites and, and maybe some hints of blue and red and yellow and so on. But the crystals are not the source of the light, 
just as jasper is not the source of light in that city. What is actually giving the brilliance to the jasper? Look at verse 11. This city has the glory of God. There's the source of the brilliance. Now when you think about God's glory, there are two passages to keep in mind. And these really are my two go-to passages when trying to understand the glory of God. So you want to keep these at hand when you think about the glory of God. But I want to look at them for just a moment. They're both found in the Old Testament. And the first one is in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And the other one is in Ezekiel 1.28. So turn first of all to Exodus 34. And let me just give you the background context from chapter 33. Uh, this is the passage where God's people sinned at Mount Sinai. So Moses interceded for them. And he concluded his prayer in verse 18 with the plea that uh, he asked God to show him his glory. And what does Moses want? He wants a visible sight of God's glory. And God's response to him is this, I'll make all of my goodness pass before you and proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Now just kind of make the connection here. What does Moses want to see? He wants to see God's glory. But what is the answer to his prayer? Okay, I'll make all of my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim my name before you. However, verse 20, you cannot see my face. That, I mean, that, that can't be done. That would undo you, really, to see my face. But he says, I'll put you in the cleft of a rock. In verse 22, my glory will pass by. Uh, so what happens? Well, look at verses 6 and 7 of the next chapter. God put him in the cleft of that rock. And by the way, those who went to Israel with me saw the traditional spot of the cleft in the rock. Uh, which is quite fascinating. And it says, And the Lord passed before him, and he proclaimed, uh, this is what he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So what's happening here? What did Moses ask, ask to see again? He wanted to see God's glory. He wanted a, a visible representation. But what actually happened? God proclaimed these things in verses 6 and 7. Moses got a verbal recitation. And what did God proclaim? Well, if we talk about the fact that God is truth and God has grace and God is merciful, and these are what we call His what? His attributes or His perfections. So, what is God's glory in this passage? What is Moses receiving? He's receiving a proclamation of God's perfections. In other words, God's glory is the sum total of all of those perfections. Now, I can put it this way. What is the glory of a thing? The glory of something is its unique excellence. It's the distinguishing feature of that thing that separates it from other things of its class. So for example, what is the glory of Mount Everest? What is the glory of the Dead Sea? What is the glory of a giraffe? What is the glory of a kangaroo? You see, these are all self-explanatory because the glory of something is what distinguishes it in some superlative way. Now, what is God's glory? It's the sum total of His perfections. Each of them unique in its superlative degree in Him. And some of them unique to Him. Nobody else has them. Okay, what would it look like then if God decided to show that to our eyes? That's Ezekiel 1. Turn over there. This is God's call of Ezekiel. It's the longest call of any prophet in Scripture. 
There's basically three chapters given to this call. And during Ezekiel's call, God actually displays Himself visibly to the prophet. And He does so with likenesses. So let's begin reading verse 26. Uh, Ezekiel, uh, he's referring to this expanse of this space or firmament that's over the cherubim. And he says, And above the firmament, over their heads, was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also, from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around, like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So what is the visible manifestation of the sum total of God's perfections look like to the human eye? It appears like a radiance. But the kind of a radiance that is refracted in a cloud so that it, the, you know, the light breaks up into all the colors of the spectrum, like a rainbow. When you stop and think about it, there's hardly anything more suitable in communicating the perfections of God visually. Because on the one hand, you've got a multiplicity of color. But on, on the other hand, that multiplicity is displayed in this harmonious, sequential color spectrum of a rainbow where every color is beautiful in and of itself, but together they are spectacular and radiant. And you don't really know where one color ends and another color begins. Such was the appearance of the glory of the Lord. Now, with that in mind, go back to Revelation 21. Here's a whole city. And after it's identified as the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the very first thing we are told about is its brilliance likened to a clear jasper stone. And the source of the brilliance that is being refracted by that stone, the source of that is the glory of the Lord, which is found here in a visible form. Now I do hope nobody here doubts the literalness of these descriptions. Quite disturbing when you read commentaries from some good conservative men, and they end up writing statements that indicate that they are departing from their subjection to biblical revelation. My first question is, well, what gives them the right to say that? Uh, one normally conservative commentator writes that this city literally never was, is not now, and never will be. Well, how can you say that? And of course, his whole point is uh, that this isn't to be taken literally. This is all symbolic. It's describing the church right now. And, and then he goes into great length to try and guess what he thinks these things symbolize. Well, you know, God says he has a city. So does he or doesn't he? He says that his glory is in it. And it's brilliant. And if you want a little bit of a taste of what that's like, it's like a precious stone. Like jasper, except a crystal clear jasper. It's like that in its brilliance. Well, in verse 12, the next feature we are directed to is the wall. There is a wall, and we are told in verse 18, again, the material of the wall is jasper. But what John initially describes is this wall's greatness and its height. In other words, it's not just the fact that it's very tall, but it has massive proportions and it's pretty impressive as a result. Look at verse 17. It says that the wall measures 144 cubits. Now, if you work that out in meters, you end up uh, with something about 66 meters. Uh, and if this is referring to its height, then it's 66 meters tall. However, that is not specified in the verse. 
The only other possibility really is that it's referring to its thickness. Maybe it's 66 meters thick. And some people take that position because they say that, uh, you know, a 66 meter wall um, is not very tall in comparison to the height of this city overall. I mean, what's the point of having a 66 meter wall around a city that is as tall as this passage is describing? Well, you do want to keep in mind that the height of the wall really isn't in proportion to any buildings behind it, like it is with any city wall, but it's really in proportion to the human figures that go in and out of the gates of that wall. And a 66 meter, or uh, for those of you in old school, the 200 foot wall, uh, absolutely dwarfs these people. Uh, You know, the Great Wall of China, for example, averages 7.5 meters in height. Well, this wall is over nine times that. So it's like walking up uh, to a wall and staring up 20 stories. It's pretty tall. And I'm making this point, uh, really, because if you have an NIV, and some of you may have that, uh, well, they opt for this being the wall's thickness. And they've actually put the word thick in the text, although they didn't indicate anywhere that they added the word. Uh, In other words, they they really interpreted the meaning. And uh, it looks like, uh, you know, the, the way they've done it, it looks like that uh, their interpretation is what the Word of God is saying. And that's a problem in the translation, uh, uh, in, in my opinion. But I think it probably more likely refers to the height. Uh, and I think it just makes more sense because it is transparent as well. Uh, for verse 18, and the glory of God shines through it. But if you want to think it's thick, that's okay. You can do that. <laughs> now, verses 12 and 13, that wall has gates in it. Uh, Notice that it says a great and high wall with 12 gates. And in verse 13, it says there are three gates on every side of the city. Uh, Now, my first question here is, why does it even have walls? And why does it have gates? Well, certainly it's not to keep anything out. Because in the new earth, there won't be anything undesirable to keep out. And it isn't for protection because nothing will threaten the safety of this city. So evidently, it's really just there to mark out the boundaries of that city. But at any rate, there are gates. And the thing that is most significant is the fact that there are angels posted at those gates. One for each gate. You remember in the Garden of Eden that God uh, wanted to shut off the garden to Adam and Eve, and so He posted cherubim there. Well, in this city, not to keep people out, but evidently as... Uh, some kind of honor guard, God sets an angel at every one of those gates. And then we are told in verse 12 that on the gates are written the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And at this point, I want you to turn to another Old Testament passage. I want you to turn to the last chapter of Ezekiel. We saw chapter 1. Let's go to the last chapter, 48. And look at the very last part of that chapter. This is the the closing six verses of this prophecy. Now those of you who know uh, this book, you would be aware of the fact that uh, chapters 40 to 48 are describing the conditions in the millennial kingdom uh, that we studied in Revelation 20. There is a prominent city in the millennium as well. Although today we're looking at the city in the eternal state. These are two different cities. Uh, There is a city in the millennial period which is 18,000 cubits in circumference. Or 4,500 cubits per side in a square city. And verse 35, or 30 to 35, tells us that it has exits on every side. Or gates. Verse 31. And these gates are named after the tribes of Israel, just like the city in the heavenly uh, Jerusalem. Look at it in verse 31. It says the gates uh, here are going to be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates northward, one, one gate for Reuben. Well, that was Jacob's firstborn. One gate for Judah, the royal tribe. One gate for Levi, that's the priestly tribe. So now you've got three uh, prominent tribes on the north side, the firstborn, the royal, and the priestly tribe. On the east side, uh, 4,500 cubits, three gates, 
one gate for Joseph, one gate for Benjamin, the sons of Rachel, remember, and one gate for Dan, that was uh, Rachel's handmaid, Bilhah, that was her son. On the south side, measuring 4,500 cubits, three gates, one gate for Simeon, one gate for Issachar, one gate for Zebulun, the sons of Leah, uh, his first wife. On the west side, 4,500 cubits with their three gates, one gate for Gad, one gate for Asher, and one gate for Naphtali. They were the sons of the handmaids. And we don't know, again, if it's the exact same arrangement in the city where we're going to live in the eternal state. But if we do, if it is the same, then this is how the gates are going to be set up. Now this brings me to, I think, what is the most important thing to note for us. And that is that both in the millennium and in the eternal state, all people will have access to the immediate presence of God in His glory in these cities. That's the point of having gates. But as these people go in and out, their access will be through gates that are marked with the names of the sons of Israel. Okay? In other words, all people will enter and exit with that reminder before them. And it simply means that all the way into the eternal state, in fact, for all of eternity, as far as we know, we will have a constant reminder of the earliest covenant with those people. Uh, The one that was made with Abraham. God said to this man, now Abraham, your descendants are going to be as the stars of the sky, the sand of the sea. But in addition to your physical descendants, God told him that it's going to be through you that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. So it is that the whole history of salvation includes the fact that the covenants were given to these people. And the sacrificial system was given to these people. And the law was given to these people. And it's just like Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, salvation is of the Jews. And as a result, those of us from all of the other tribes and people groups and nations and languages will always have this memorial before them when they access the city of God through these gates, that their access is only possible because of what He did through that man and his descendants. Now that brings us then to the foundation stones of that city. So go back to verse 14. There are 12 massive stones under the wall of that city. And we don't know whether uh, the foundation stones are under the walls only or whether uh, they actually undergird the entire city. We don't know that. But the fact is they are called foundations. And we won't get into verses 19 and 20. We'll do that next time. Let me just say a few things about these foundations. There are certain materials in the earth that are found in such small quantities that they are considered rare. Uh, Most of the earth, about 99%, is composed of just eight elements. But then you have all of these other trace elements, and some of them are very rare, and and when they're also beautiful, uh, they are highly valued and sought after. Uh, People pay a lot of money for these things and and typically use them for ornamentation or jewelry or something like that. In other words, they have no real practical value. Now, think of that in relation to foundations in general. Uh, You know, when this building was being built, they would have laid some serious foundations underneath because they had to put up this huge uh, retaining wall on the front there, right behind you, uh, which leaks to this day, by the way. Uh, But the reason for all of that was because this building sits on a hill, uh, which would require a great deal of support so that the building doesn't just slide down the hill into the neighbor's yard. Uh, They wouldn't like that. Uh, And so it has deep and solid foundations. I remember when they uh, dug the hole for our house and we saw the concrete foundations being laid and had to cure for so many weeks and you're going to carry the weight of the rest of the house. And uh, that foundation was ugly. And it was dirty. 
and it had rods sticking out of it. And all foundations like that are typically very unattractive. And nobody walks around admiring foundations. But it's different with this city. The city, as Hebrews 11 says, is the one that Abraham was looking for, a city with foundations. Foundations that are made up not of concrete and dirt and rubble, but of all kinds of precious stones. We'll talk about those stones next time. But these foundations are also distinguished by the fact in verse 14 that they also have names inscribed on them. And these are the names of the twelve apostles. Now, I know what question typically springs to mind at this point. Everybody says, well, you know, I know who 11 of those guys are. Who's the twelfth guy? And, you know, this is one of those places, I think, where you just have to be strictly biblical. Because we could take some time to guess, and we could look at all the various arguments and reach some conclusion. But in the end, we, we really have to concede that the Bible just simply doesn't say. However, in such cases, I do think it's important for us to just know the possibilities. So it might be Matthias, the man who was chosen to take the place of Judas. Or, of course, it could be who? Paul, Saul of Tarsus, right? The apostle to the Gentiles. But the Bible doesn't say. So we're not going to speculate on one or the other. But I will tell you what we do know. We know why their names were chosen to be on these stones. And I want you to turn to two other passages uh, that will help us in this regard. And the first one is in Ephesians 2. Because in this passage, where the apostle is revealing the wonderful mystery of what Jesus Christ did in uniting Jews and Gentiles in the church, he refers to the church in verse 19 as God's household. And then he says in verse 20 that the household of God has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. See that? Church, the bride of Christ, who's identified with that city, has foundations that are the foundations of the apostles and prophets, it says, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, some of you may know that this passage actually has two possible interpretations. When it says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, it could mean that it's built on the apostles and prophets in the sense that they are the foundation itself. That is a grammatical possibility. The other possibility is that it's referring to the foundations that they laid. Foundation of the apostles and prophets means, well, they're the ones that put it down. So it's their foundation with Christ as the chief cornerstone. Now, how would you know which one it is? Well, in this case, we actually have another cross-reference that will help us here. It's in 1 Corinthians 3.11, so turn over there. And in this passage, the apostle is referring to himself as a builder. He's talking about building the church. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder. Now look at the wording here. I have laid the foundation. Well, what foundation did you lay, Paul? Verse 11. Well, no other foundation can anyone lay for the church than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, I think that really answers the question as to how we should take the interpretation of Ephesians 2.20. Remember, you always interpret the unclear in light of the clear. The foundation of the apostles and prophets is the foundation that they laid. And somebody says, well, if Jesus is the foundation, then why does Ephesians also say that He's the chief cornerstone? Because He is the chief cornerstone. And he was put in place as the chief cornerstone at his resurrection. But guess what? He's also the entirety of what the church is built on. The whole church stands on Jesus Christ. And it was the apostles and prophets who laid that foundation. So it's no wonder then, back in Revelation 21, that you have these guys' names on those stones. Let's just put it all together. What this passage clearly communicates is that you have a city. It is sitting on foundations 
that are laid by these apostles who are New Testament men. But when you go in and out of that city, you're going to go through gates that are named after the tribes. Those are the Old Testament people. So the city has that combination because the citizens of that people, of that city, are the people of God. All the people of God as one people. It's bringing them together. Now that brings us then lastly to verses 15 to 17 and the shape and the size of this city. Verse 16, the city was laid out like a square. It's actually uh, four square because we're told its length is as great as its width. And the word that is translated as square here is a word that was sometimes used in the ancient world for a cube. Maybe what's being communicated here doesn't always have to be used in that way, but sometimes it was used in that way. And if that's the case here, it would make sense because it says that the length and the width and the height are equal. But if you think about it, that could also be true of a pyramid. Or it could be saying that you have a four-square city that is on a level plane, but when you're talking about some of the spires of the buildings, they go all the way up to the same height as the width. It could be either. But if the word square is being used, as it sometimes was in the ancient world, to refer to a cube, then we're looking at a cube. But regardless of that, we do have a tremendous size here. Verse 16 says that the measurement was 1,200 furlongs, and the word there is literally stadia, the word for which we get our word stadium, obviously. An ancient stadia was a unit of measure about 600 feet or 183 meters. An Olympic stadia was about 194 uh, meters, and then you actually had stadia that were kind of in between those two measurements. So there's a little bit of uncertainty here, but at the very least, you're talking about a city that's over 2,000 kilometers on one side, or on each side, and then possibly 2,000 kilometers straight up. And we need to talk about that for a moment. How big is that? Well, if you started here in Sydney, and you traveled... 2,000 kilometers west, where would you end up? You're in Alice Springs now. And then go 2,000 kilometers north, where are you going to end up? Well, now you're in Townsville, or somewhere just north of Townsville, north Queensland, somewhere. Now, the square kilometers of those distances is really incredible. 2,000 by 2,000 is 4 million square kilometers. How big is that? Well... Our own state of New South Wales is 800,000 square kilometers. Well, this city is five times the size of this state. Well, let's take Western Australia. You know, people from over there think they've got their own country because it's so big. Uh, this city is nearly twice the size of Western Australia. If you combine the square kilometers of England, Scotland, Ireland, France, Germany, Poland, Spain, Portugal, Italy, Switzerland, Greece, Austria, and Romania, those 13 countries, this city is twice that size. Just in square kilometerage. That's a word. Square kilometers. And we haven't even talked about the cubic kilometers or 2,000 kilometers high. Now, the space shuttle is generally 400 kilometers above the surface of the Earth when it orbits the Earth. In pictures from the shuttle looking down on Earth. All right, go up five times beyond that. This is the height of this city. The cubic kilometers in this city amount to nearly five billion. Uh, that's about 60 times the surface area of the entire landmass of the world. And it's in that city. But you see, we're not on this Earth anymore, are we? This is a new earth. So think for a moment of the parks and the rivers, and the mountains, the fields, the pastures, and the landscapes, and, and the vistas, and you know, all of it almost without measure and 
perfect and shining and clean and uh, never defiled and never diseased and never decaying. Uh, there's no McDonald's wrappers lying on the ground. Somebody left there after their picnic. It's trash. And there's no chicken bones. It's KFC scattered around. Some dogs being in the garbage, right? You never have to lock your doors. There's nothing to harm anyone in this whole expanse. Uh, it's just a great, glorious, shining, safe place to live in forever. That's what God has prepared for you. He's not ashamed for you to be His people. How do I know that? Because He has prepared a city for you. Part of our ministry to one another is to keep reminding ourselves of that. To keep saying to one another, hey, set your affection on things above. You know what? Your citizenship is in heaven. Stop loving the world. Stop loving the things that are in the world. Why? Because the fashion of this world is passing away. Instead, keep a lookout for that city which has foundations, whose builder and maker God. When I was preparing this message, I found myself humming a little tune. An old Isaac Watts hymn, which we've not sung in a long time. Uh, maybe we could sing that in the near future. I don't know. But here are the words. Come, we that love the Lord, and let our joys be known. Join in a song with sweet accord. Join in a song with sweet accord. And thus surround the throne. And thus surround the throne. And then the chorus. We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion. The beautiful city of God. And then the last stanza goes like this. Then let our songs abound and let every tear be dry. We're marching through Emmanuel's ground. We're marching through Emmanuel's ground to fairer worlds on high. Fairer worlds on high. We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion. That beautiful city of God. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are full with imagining what this city will be like and longing for it. We thank You for giving us these hints of what awaits us, this eternal state. Thank You for what You've done in providing Your Son as uh, the payment for our sin that enables us to live in this city. We pray that You would uh, send our gaze upward in this service and uh, each day as we long for these things to come to pass. Father, we rejoice in the fellowship you've given us in the meantime, these good gifts you've given to us, the blessing of what we have in Christ. Help us to enjoy these gifts, but to always see them, Father, as temporary, knowing that that good and perfect gift of your Son has granted us access into heaven, into this heavenly city. Bless us, Father. Help us to take as many as we can with us We pray these things in Jesus' name.